Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today we are talking with Dr. Sandra Kane Gill. Dr. Gill is Professor of Pharmacy and Therapeutics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and also Critical Care Medication Safety Pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gill. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Gill, you were the guest editor for the themed issue of pharmacotherapy entitled Innovations in Medication Safety. Just to, to, to begin, as a background statement, I think all clinicians who prescribe drug therapy or monitor the effects of drug therapy realize that drugs can produce adverse events. In your accompanying editorial to this themed issue, you cite a number of statistics related to medication safety issues that relate to drugs after they were marketed and really not so much during their early uh, development. Can you comment on this issue further? I'm, I'm wondering, is there a need for more post-marketing surveillance, uh, pharmacovigilance because of some change in the drug therapy and uh, the drug approval process or the nature of newly marketed drugs themselves or, or perhaps for some other reason? Yeah, one of the uh, statistics that I mentioned in the editorial is that one-third of the drugs that were approved over a 10-year period required the FDA's attention due to safety concerns or safety issues. But really what I think this is about is the limitations associated with the pre-clinical, uh, pre-marketing clinical trials uh, that uh, drive us to make sure that we're doing a lot of post-marketing surveillance. For example, the pre-marketing clinical trials are, are much more directed at, with their primary outcome for efficacy, meaning that they really uh, focus on a controlled environment with explicit inclusion and exclusion criteria. Other limitations associated with the uh, pre-marketing clinical trials include um, shorter durations of treatment than may be necessary in the real world or specific patient populations um, not necessarily inclusive of all populations that the therapy could include. Now, it's appropriate because that's how the FDA approves indications for these drugs, but still it does present some limitations. So it's really necessary to have uh, post-marketing surveillance uh, for safety issues in the real-world setting when you eliminate all of those, um, you eliminate that controlled environment and you're using it how you would normally practice uh, routinely in, in patient care. And that's where we're really, um, where we're going to have a better appreciation for the types of safety concerns or adverse drug events uh, that may arise, making post-marketing surveillance highly important. Um, th thank you. I'd like to explore this concept of um, 
post-marketing surveillance uh, a little bit more. Um, articles in this themed issue explore a number of different methods to detect medication safety issues. Would you mention some of the innovative approaches for detection and prevention of medication adverse effects that that readers will find discussed uh, in this uh, special themed issue of the journal? Yes, we're living in a world of big data, right? We have a lot of large medical centers. We have um, medical centers that are affiliated with health plans. So we can track, uh, you know, when a patient is uh, admitted to a hospital, but maybe admitted to a hospital within the same health system, but yet it's a different hospital. Or with the um, health plan data, we can track some outpatient information and different claims data. Um, so we're just living this world of big data, a lot more data, a lot more opportunities to track outcomes than we could before. But to really identify safety events that occur um, and maybe documented in this, this big data, uh, we can use something called natural language processing. And natural language processing allows us to look for, um, look within text uh, to identify events. For example, if a patient's receiving anticoagulation and we're concerned with bleeding, we can identify those patients who received an anticoagulant and then use this natural language processing to scan all the text to find out if there's a concern or some documentation uh, for bleeding in the medical record. This is really useful in the sense that it's not going to require all that uh, um, tedious TARP review that we often do to try to find these types of events. We're going to use this um, automated approach to try to identify events, give us, just give us a much better understanding of events that are occurring um, specific to our patient populations or just overall for, for those particular drugs. Another idea is that, um, you know, the, the process I just mentioned with using natural language processing and big data, that's really for the detection of events that have occurred. I think all of our attention is being directed towards prevention, prevention of these ADEs. Um, so we can do things like developing predictive models for those individuals who may be at risk for developing adverse drug events um, and identifying them before we start them on that medication or before we start them on that dose of that drug so that we can try to be preventative, maybe by using an alternate drug or reducing the dose. Um, so it's much more focused on not, not trying to identify an event after it's occurred, but making sure that we're preventing those events before they occur. And I really think that's the direction of, of medication safety as we progress in the future. Well, let me ask you a little bit more of a, a practical question, because obviously some of these approaches for surveillance of medication safety and you know, large databases are beyond the capabilities of uh, individual clinicians. Are there some tools available to the individual clinician for improving medication safety that readers will find discussed in this themed issue? Sure. I think um, along the same lines of prevention and early detection of adverse events, we have some newer biomarkers that are becoming available. Uh, one of the items that's discussed in this particular issue is around drug-associated acute kidney injury. And using biomarkers as a tool to identify drug-associated acute injury is uh, really um, something the clinician can use now. For so long, we relied on serum creatinine, uh, rise in serum creatinine to identify a drug-associated acute kidney injury event. 
But simcreatinine rises, often lags behind an actual insult by somewhere between 24 to 72 hours. Newer biomarkers like cystatin C may aid in the dosing of drugs. And then there's this other biomarkers that are damaged biomarkers, such as TIMP2, IGFBP7, and NGAL, that may be early warning biomarkers for someone who's at risk for developing AKI in the next 12 to 24 hours. And that may tip the clinician off to say, okay, well, then I don't want to put them on this particular nephrotoxin, or maybe I don't want to dose them in that particular way um, for this particular nephrotoxin. Um, so uh, it's about um, something we can do now is using these early warning biomarkers, uh, for example, with the drug-associated acute kidney injury. I'm glad you brought up this topic of acute uh, kidney injury, um, since obviously many drugs have a documented basis for being nephrotoxic. Um, this is the area of, of your own research, I believe, and you analyzed a large database of adverse event reporting to examine this issue. Uh, would you mind describing uh, some of your research and your principal findings? Yes. Uh, I stressed um, a little bit earlier the importance of post-marketing surveillance. And what the FDA has done is they've made their ADE reporting database publicly available to allow um, individuals, researchers um, uh, in the area of patient safety to better understand events that are occurring or being reported by healthcare professionals and the lay and the and layman. Um, I wanted to better understand all the drugs that were being reported to be associated with acute kidney injury. And our investigative team evaluated those drugs that were already known to be associated with acute kidney injury those that may have some evidence to support the relationship, and those drugs that had not previously been reported to be associated with acute kidney injury. Interestingly, about 65% of the drugs that were reported to be associated with acute kidney injury were for newer potential nephrotoxins that didn't have um, previous literature to support um, their, uh, the idea of nephrotoxicity for these drugs. That, that's interesting. Um, what I find well, alarming, maybe too, too strong a word, uh, about your results um, is that some of these potential nephrotoxins, such as metformin, atorvastatin, and, and digoxin, um, they're used to treat chronic conditions and often patients take for, for decades. So I have a question, I apologize if it sounds trivial, that just relates to delayed effects. Can a, can a patient or a clinician be assured that a history of trouble-free therapy for years with a drug means that that therapy can continue indefinitely without caution for a kidney injury? I'm, I'm particularly thinking of the geriatric population that uh, takes chronic therapy uh, with some of these, uh, again, for just decades. I don't think the question is trivial. I think that it it prompts us to think about a couple of things with regards to these data. The first is that, you know, a person may be on something like uh, an ACE inhibitor for a long duration of time, and it didn't cause any um, kidney problems for this particular patient. But then eventually as the patient, um, you know, may get uh, alternate chronic diseases that occur and um, they have more drugs that are added to their particular drug regimen, uh, this results in uh, 
uh, an addition of drugs. So maybe they're on the ACE inhibitor for hypertension. And then all of a sudden they, you know, they're having pain. So they start taking an NSAID and then, you know, they end up with congestive heart failure. And now they're on some type of a, a diuretic such as Lasix. And, you know, what ends up happening is, you know, that ACE inhibitor itself didn't cause acute kidney injury. But now as the patient's drug regimen becomes more complex, we're adding these additional nephrotoxins on, and that results in some nephrotoxic burden. And that can contribute, that drug is now contributing with these other drugs um, to the development of acute kidney injury. I was just going to say that it's really interesting because what you're suggesting is that you could be taking chronic therapy for years or decades and there really be a, a subclinical nephrotoxic process going on that doesn't come to light until other drugs are added on into uh, as concomitant therapy. Yeah, and sometimes we think in isolation, right? We think about the new drug that we're adding on and we say, okay, well, the renal function is good. They may be on that ACE inhibitor, but the renal function is good. And then... Um, I mean, maybe we don't put enough um, priority to what that burden will be when we add these additional therapies uh, into play as well. I think there's one other limitation, though, associated with this, these data. When, when we talk about people are going to be like, oh, my gosh, metformin or digoxin are causing acute kidney injury. I haven't heard that before. Um, you know, why did the database say this? I do also want to highlight that this database, the FDA database, has some limitations and that... Um, you know, the events are reported by healthcare professionals, by industry, um, by lay people, and that these events aren't necessarily uh, definitively associated with causality, right? There's no, um, after it's been reported, there's nobody, clinician who goes in and checks causality for a definitive association. Um, so maybe in these cases of, for example, digoxin, uh, maybe uh, the reporter realized that they're having, they're on digoxin. You know, maybe this patient progressively developed acute kidney injury, you know, due to their age or maybe something else that's going on with the particular patient. And now they're having some side effects associated with the digoxin toxicity um, in the presence of AKI. So maybe the digoxin didn't necessarily cause the AKI, the AKI occurred, you know, and then now they're having some ADEs associated with the digoxin instead. And so I do want to highlight that there could be, you know, some limitations associated with this database and that, you know, be careful in your interpretation. But I do think you know, it still highlights us to investigate this further because several times in this database, digoxin was reported for AKI. And so what's really going on there? And we need to investigate that further for what, what the actual problem is. I know that this is discussed more in, in your uh, research findings um, in your <clears throat> article in the themed issue of pharmacotherapy, but um, it, it brings up a really question. Um, since you've been focusing on acute uh, kidney injury. What's your feeling that similar results might be found if you if you look that apply to other organ systems, um, such as the toxicity? Yeah, clearly, I think the FAERS database, the FDA database, um, has useful information in it. And, and a lot of the information can be hypothesis generating information. And I really think that it can be useful for evaluating other ADEs, such as hepatotoxicity, so we can identify, you know, maybe some drugs that we didn't really think were associated with that particular ADE um, previously, um, but this large database highlights that if enough people are reporting it, we should at least um, consider it uh, what may actually be going on. And, and it may you know, bring to light some drugs that we hadn't thought of before that may be related to these particular organ dysfunctions. 
Well, um, what's your outlook for the for the future of patient safety during uh, pharmacotherapy? I mean, for example, um, with uh, personalized medicine uh, more on the forefront all the time, will we reach a state where adverse events will be much less of a concern, or will we always be seeking new ways of avoiding the negative consequences of drug therapy? You know, medication safety in general requires hypervigilance, right? So we're all going to be thinking about these negative consequences of drug therapy, but it's a balance. It's between avoiding these negative consequences, but certainly I think there's an opportunity to reduce the number of ADEs as we move towards more prevention of these events. Um, and it comes with better understanding, um, like you said, with personalized medicine, how to indi- how individuals may metabolize drugs. And uh, again, when we understand better about, uh, I mentioned before, using predictive analytics to um, identify someone who may be at risk for an event, this allows us to work towards um, having less events, m- mitigating events, or at least mitigating the severity of those events. Well, I have a final question, and it's just, uh, again, a general question. Are there guidelines that that you could state to uh, the readers of uh, this pharmacotherapy-themed issue about uh, how they can individually enhance medication safety in their practice? Certainly. We uh, actually just published the first medication safety use guidelines for critically ill patients. It was published... um, in critical care medicine in September of 2017. The guidelines overall provide an evidence-based evaluation of safety practices. And some of the safety practices that are encouraged within those guidelines are standardizing medication concentrations or using direct observation as a means of identifying medication errors. Um, It also highlights where we need more data uh, where we need more research done to be able to guide practice. Um, so, you know, we think that clinical decision support is highly useful and it's employed in many institutions, but, um, you know, some of the data around it are conflicting until we really uh, fine tune the clinical decision support. We're going to be plagued with things like alert fatigue. And while these guidelines are specific to the ICU, I think that um, there are several practices that could pertain to non-ICU environments as well. Uh, so, so it could be applied to general practice. Great. Um, thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Sandra Kane-Gill of the University of Pittsburgh about her research into kidney injury and about the thin issue of pharmacotherapy that she edited um, that's devoted to the topic of medication safety. Thank you, Dr. Gill, for an informative and insightful discussion. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.